welcome to a new episode of NHL Executive Suite. I'm Deb Placey. So glad to have Stan Bowman, the now longtime general manager of the Chicago Blackhawks with us. The only one, I think the only one, of the 31 general managers named after the Stanley Cup. How old were you when you realized the significance of that? It was actually, I was probably five or six years old at the time. And as a little kid, you know, it was, it was sort of a joke in my family. People would say, they would prompt, they would say, ask him what his name is. And I would say Stanley Cup Bowman because I thought that was my name. <laughs> really? So, yeah, honestly. So then it was one time I was probably five or six and we had to go do something with, um, you know, official government, uh, like paperwork. So we went in there and I was with my dad and they asked my name. He said Stanley Glenn Bowman. And I didn't say anything. We got to the car and I said, why did you tell them that was my name? And he said, well, that is your name. I said, I thought my middle name was Cup. <laughs> and I was on it because I didn't know. That's all they told me when I was a little kid because it would prompt people to ask me that. So, oh, so they put you up to it. They put me up to it, and I didn't know any different. So I went probably five or six years thinking my middle name was Cup. That's and, funny. Uh, and then I realized uh, it wasn't. But uh, So it was obvious from the time I was little that I was named after the Cup and hockey was going to be uh, in my blood, so to speak. Well, so glad you're here. We have so much to talk about. I don't think we have heard enough from you about what it was like growing up Bowman, and I, I want to do that. Let's do the coaching thing first, and then we can move on. Sure. So you won three Stanley Cups, obviously, with Joel Quenville. What was, was that the hardest decision you've made as a GM to let him go? It was, uh, for sure. I, you know, you, when you work closely with someone for that many years, you don't realize until that moment comes how hard that conversation is going to be. And, you know, you're you think about it and then you get in there and it was pretty emotional for both of us. You know, we, we accomplished so much together and it was a, it was a great ride. Uh, so that was a really, really, really tough day. And, um, but that's part of our business, you know, is trying to separate out sort of the history that you've had together and the great moments. And you got to look at sort of where you're at right now and what you think is going to be best to try to move you forward from the position you're in. So, it was a real tough time for us, but, uh, you know, we're trying to turn the page on that looking forward and, um, you know, we're hopeful and excited about the direction that we're headed. Would you have made the change if you didn't have Jeremy Colleton in place and be so excited to have him go? Good question. Um, potentially not. I, I think there's a comfort level when you work with somebody. And I think, you know, I got to know Jeremy over the past uh, 18 months as far as, uh, you know, talking to him weekly, watching him operate our team in Rockford. And there was a real comfort level that he was the guy that was going to be able to help us move forward. So um, that certainly made things um, a little bit easier transitioning forward. There, there was not an unknown what the, would the new person be like. You know, we work great together. Uh, I understand sort of how he sees the game. Um, we have some chemistry, you know, as far as our, our personalities are somewhat similar. Um, and I think not identical, but I think, you know, we're similar. And for that reason, um, I'm really hopeful for the way it's going to go. What is it about your personality that's similar? I, now I hear about you that folks say about you that you're really an individual. You're not afraid to dance to the beat of your own drum mm -hmm. and, and step outside the box. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, I think we, the similarities between Jeremy and I would be that we both have, um, we're maybe on the quieter side, and, and Jeremy's talked about that even recently in some of his interviews that he's had to learn to come out of his shell a little bit, but naturally he's probably a little bit more introverted and he likes to analyze things and he likes to um, 
you know, kind of look at every different angle in a situation. I'm not a real quick reaction kind of guy. I don't think he is either. And I think um, both have a curiosity. Um, why are things the way they are as opposed to just sort of going with it? I think, you know, I, I want to try to understand not just why something's working or isn't working, but what's underneath that? Like, there's got to be a reason that this, there's got to be a reason that this person is kind of responding in this way. And instead of just sort of accepting it, I kind of want to dive deeper and figure it out. You know, so, you know, individual motivation. And I've had some conversations with Jeremy about that, even outside of sports, just, you know, kind of um, we're all in this world together. And, you know, you, you look at people and you wonder why are they acting that way? You know, what's really behind it? I think if you can understand people, you can have better success working together and figuring out a way to change things when they aren't working. Well, there's so much about life, I think, that if you have empathy for someone, you kind of understand where they're coming from or where they're going, can translate to the business world or to sports if you understand, you know, why somebody does something. Because if you're good at it and you can see that, it helps you adjust to how you're going to be or what you're going to say or what you're going to do, no? Absolutely. And I, you know, I sort of learned that maybe the hard way, you know, was, God, it seems a long time ago. And I was really sick for a stretch there when I um, and I think when people get cancer, when they get whatever your illness is and you get um, some bad news, you start to think of things a little bit differently. And, um, you know, it, it's sort of cliche, but you really take stock of things and you start to understand suffering that other people are going through. And you try to, uh, when you're going through it yourself, I think it gives you a perspective that as much as you want to try to have it, um, you don't have it unless you've been in some tough situations. So, you know, luckily I, I came through that and I think it gave me maybe an appreciation for um, you don't sweat the small things as much, as much as, you know, that's part of our business. And there's this the world that we live in today with quick reactions and there's commentary on everything you say and do. Uh, I think I've I try to kind of stay out of the fray a little bit. And um, so I think from that perspective, I'm a little bit more um, analytical and I think you know, getting back to your question, Jeremy and I kind of share that same approach to things. How do you handle, I want to ask you how you handle criticism. And I think sometimes it might even have been maybe your wife or your kids. It's maybe harder on them to hear you get criticized. <laughs> Is it or how have you handled it? Uh, it's a lot harder on them. I think, you know, I, I've sort of trained my kids. I think my wife has a harder time to just, just ignore it. And, um, it's harder for her to do that, I think, uh, you know, a little bit more emotional maybe than me. And um, I think the, the, the way I've answered this question recently, I've asked, been asked a lot of the criticism and stuff is um, when I say I don't let it bother me, I don't mean that it doesn't, that it, I don't care about it, but it doesn't, it doesn't do me any good to focus on, like if you're sitting there being very critical of me or things that I've said or done, um, that's not going to help me the next day. Like, I guess I'm, I'm, I've taken emotion out of it and I look at it from a pragmatic or practical sense. I've got a job to do. I've got to try to look at tomorrow. And if I'm focused on what someone's going to say about me, um, th that's not going to help me do my job any better. If anything, it can just kind of cloud the waters. So, um, what I do is I, it's hard to do it, but I really do just set it aside and I, I focus on, I'm going to keep working until the day they tell me they don't want me to work anymore. And I don't spend time, uh, I don't waste my time thinking about, well, who might criticize me if I do this or 
if I do that, you have to have confidence in yourself and you also have to do what you think is right because in the moment you can do things that will be praised. Um, but if ultimately they don't work, then you're going to get criticized in the long run. So you have to do what you're convicted is the right thing. And then you may have criticism in the short term, but if it works, you're not going to be criticized down the road. So you really do have to always sort of do what you believe is right. Um, and then, you know, the results will will sort of dictate which way it goes. What kind of a decision maker are you generally? Was the coaching change something you asked your dad about? Do you go to him for advice or you try not to go to him for advice? Do you find you sit on things for a while or you go with your gut? What kind of decision maker are you in your role? Uh, I'd like to get a lot of input. So yeah, I do ask a lot of questions. I think um, that's my style. It doesn't work for everybody, but for me, I like to pull things from a lot of different people. My dad is certainly one as an advisor. You know, a lot of other people that I work with on a daily basis, I'll have conversations. Al McIsaac, we talk all the time, and Norm McIver is my assistant general manager. Uh, Pierre Gauthier, who's had a lot of experience in the game. Mark Kelly, Ryan Stewart. So these are all guys that all kind of get their uh, perspective on things. And... um, Sometimes you have a consensus, but I would say most of the time there's there's some uh, differing viewpoints. Um, certain people are usually different than others. Um, you know, they, we have some independent thinkers in that group. Um, but at the same time, there's the other side of it, and I've been fortunate enough to work with John McDonough um, for ten years now, and you know, John always gives me a little bit of a different um, look at things, and I think I've he's sort of been a mentor to me over the years. You know, he has a lot of experience in sports coming from baseball. He was with the Cubs for a long, long time, and then he transitioned over to hockey. So he wasn't steeped in the, he's not a real uh, hockey guy per se, but I think his hockey knowledge in the last 10 years, he's, he's been a qu- pretty quick study in things. But what John's good at is giving me uh, a perspective, just sports in general and um, how people, you know, from his life at the Chicago Cubs, he saw a lot of different things. He worked with some really high-profile people. It's a lot of personalities, and he gave me a lot of advice. So, you know, I try to take those inputs, and at the end of the day, though, I think you said it best, you have to kind of trust your gut and your instinct. I mean, for me, um, the, the only decisions I think that you maybe regret are the ones where you took a consensus and it was against what you felt in your stomach, but you did it anyway, um, and... I think, you know, the, the few times that that's happened, those are the ones that maybe you wouldn't do again. But the other ones, um, you kind of take a poll of the of the room and you, you, you talk it through and then you have to be your own person, though, and go forward with what you have confidence in. Do you think you're similar to your dad? In, well, how are you similar to him in terms of a, as a general manager? Personality-wise, we're much different. Like, I think, I mean, obviously he's older now, but when he was, like, my age, he had a lot more intensity. He was a fiery guy. Um, you know, he was a much more emotional guy, I think, than I than I am. Um, you know, I think he's mellowed in time, but uh, by nature, I think we're different. I think the similarities would be in um, his uh, analytical side. So I think what made him great as a coach was... Um, he was always sort of ahead of everybody else. And I always found the one thing that made him better than any other coach I've seen was he didn't ever think he had all the answers. He was a very curious guy. So 
for example, he would be talking to you, Deb, and um, he might say, you know, what did you see? What did you think of the game last night? And you might say five things, four of which made no sense at all. But you might have said one thing that was interesting that he hadn't thought about. And sure enough, he would sometimes incorporate that. Because I, I remember as a teenager, he would ask me after a game, like, what did you think of the game last night? And I would tell him things that I saw. And and then sometimes there were a few occasions when the next day, something exactly that I had said that I think they should try, they would be doing it. And I would be thinking, like, that's so weird that he listened to me. Like, <laughs> he's got all these other coaches. He's got all these other people. But... But I think he never thought there was an idea that was a that was um, below using, and it could come from his best friend who was a mechanic, or it could come from, you know, his guy who watched hockey all night long. If a good idea is a good idea, I think he was never afraid to kind of pick and choose. And I think I'm, so I learned from that. I watched it and I saw that that's a good way to be. And um, I don't have all the answers. You know, I I try to um, look around and and kind of pick and choose the things which are unique um, and maybe haven't been tried before. But that's that's part of innovating is you have to be willing to um, try different things. And some of them won't work, um, but some of them probably will work. And when that happens, you have a chance to gain an advantage. To reach the level of success that you have, winning all those cups in all the years, and then for your dad to have won so many, you could lose count. Most people would think you'd have to have a really big ego to accomplish that much. And from what you're saying, that to me means there's not a lot of ego there. No, I would say um, he has, of all the most accomplished people I've ever been around, I would say he has no ego at all. I mean, he, it's all about he, my dad. I don't know if there's anybody I've ever met that just loves the game of hockey more than him. Um, he works for us, but if he didn't work for us, he would be watching games every night. I mean, he watches college games. He watches junior games. He watches all kinds of hockey every night. That's just what he does, and he's passionate about it. And I think um, there's no ego at all. I mean, I, and I think maybe that's what gets overlooked sometimes. It's not about um, he just loves the game of hockey, and he's got so many interesting ideas on it and he's seen more than i'll ever see in the game um and that's you know one of the things that's pretty unique is i I get a chance to work side by side with him um you know and he's an advisor so he's he's somewhat removed from the day-to-day stuff but that doesn't mean that he's not plugged into the game i mean he can tell you which power plays are really going and they're trying something different if you watch this he watches way more hockey than i watch because he's got more time to do it um, but that's, that's sort of interesting because he gives us things to think about and to, you know, to ponder. What was it like for you to, uh, to see him, you know, sort of away from the ice, even when he would get with his buddies and tell stories? What, what were those days like? He's a great storyteller. I mean, he's got so many of them. And I think the thing that's, that's amazing is just his recall. I mean, he can remember... If you ask him in 1967 in the Stanley Cup final, what was the score of game three? And he can remember who was on the ice when the, when the, games, or the goal was scored. Like, um, I mean, he's still got some of these log books at home. Like, he was keeping detailed stats on his players back in the 60s before really? anyone was tracking. He would track who was on the ice for the goal. Really? Yeah, so he's got all his handwritten logs that he wow. used to do. So, like, from that perspective, he's just 
way ahead of the game. I mean, there's there's nobody I think that had that, and he wasn't doing it because he read about it in a in a book and said it's just it's sort of that curiosity that I think sets him apart. And for that reason, you know, you'd be silly not to try to pick his brain whenever you can. So let's go to Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. You're not Catholic, right? I'm not. And <laughs> you went to what, grammar school, a high school, religious school, the Notre Dame Jesuit High School. Tell us about that experience and how it shaped you. It's a different path, I guess. I think everyone's surprised when I say that. But yeah, I went to Catholic grammar school. I went to Jesuit High School, Canisius High School in Buffalo, New York. And then I moved on to Notre Dame. So certainly had a lot of exposure to religion over the years. Um, I mean, we're we're Presbyterian, so it's not like we're not religious at all, and and it's not like the the faith is that much different. I mean, the the foundation of Catholicism is similar, but I certainly took a lot of religion classes as a kid. I feel like I could probably um, teach a class after all the the ones I've taken. But um, that was just the path we took. I think you know when I was we moved to Buffalo from Montreal when I was six years old, and the, the best school in the area was the Catholic school. So my my parents send us there, and then. From that point forward, uh, you get to eighth grade, you choose where to go to high school. And, you know, from that school, a lot of kids went on to, you know, Catholic high school. So that was the path I took. And um, I had a neighbor who was, uh, whose older brother went to Notre Dame. And as a teenager, I went with him and we, went, we visited um, his brother on a, on a football weekend. This was probably the you know, 1987 or so. Lou Holtz was the coach, and um, it was uh, it was just a, f- a great experience. You know, everyone says, "How did you end up at Notre Dame?" I didn't have any connections there, but it was it's pretty neat. As a I think I was 13 or 14 year old kid going for a weekend with my best friend to visit his brother, and I said, "Wow, this is what a place to go to school." And um, a couple of years later, I, I was able to finish high school. I get into Notre Dame, and I went there and. Um, you know, those are, I've said this many times, those are some of the best years of my life. Just looking back on it, I think, you know, for anybody, when you, you go from 18 to 21, you, you kind of, um, you move beyond just a kid into sort of adulthood. I mean, you move away from home, you're on your own, you're spending all your time with your peers. Um, you know, like in high school, you, you go to school and then you come home, you, you know, you're with your family or you do activities, but you don't spend 24 seven with your peers. And I think, so for that reason, there's a lot of um, growth that happens over those four years. And for me, it was a it was sort of a life changing experience to be at Notre Dame. And it's it's a special place for people who haven't been there. I mean, the, it's a beautiful setting. The campus is really, uh, and it's a campus setting. It's not spread out like you're all sort of there together. Not it's not a big school, and it's about eight or nine thousand people. And people think it's bigger than it is, but it it's sort of a smaller uh, feel to it. And um, yeah, it, I just sort of hit my stride there. I felt um, it was a natural fit for me, and I really enjoyed my years there. Friends you still have today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, well, that's the the network that you build. I mean, it's the reputation is that's the case, and I found that to be the case. You do, you do keep in touch with your friends from Notre Dame, and I think, um, you know, they don't have fraternities there, but they have your dorm is where you stay. So um, I know at some schools you, you bounce around from your freshman year, to, but you stay in the same dorm. So I think that kind of becomes your connection and you, you form close friends. Then you spend, like I said, late nights together. And I mean, you only, you know, in college, you, you go to class a few hours a day and the rest of the time you have 
to sort of do what you what you wish, and that's when I think you form all your friendships. Well, my husband went to Syracuse, and he's still thirty years later friends with the guys on his floor. You know, that's how you meet them. <laughs> right. He was on my floor. There you go. You know, so like, it's sort of the same thing. Is it? Yeah. Now it sounds like that a lot of your identity growing up was not wrapped around being a player. Was playing a big part of your life? Was it part of your identity? Was it not as important to you? I was a good player when I was younger, um, and I, I was really into it. And then I got to high school, and I remember after my um, freshman year of high school, I didn't like hockey at all. I didn't like my coach. It wasn't fun. And I remember saying to my dad at the end of my freshman year, like, I don't want to play anymore. And I was, I was sort of, there's a little trepidation in that conversation. I remember thinking back on it, like, how's he going to take this? Like, you know, he's the coach and uh, he might have been the manager at the time that uh, might have had the, both roles with Buffalo. And, um, and I remember him saying, well, if, if you don't want to play, then don't play. I mean, I played other sports and he was like, he, he was my coach in baseball and um, like golf and tennis. I was an active kid, but it just, it was not fun. I wasn't enjoying it anymore. So I stopped playing for two years. And then I found going into my senior year of high school, I really missed it. Hmm. I really missed it. And I, so I played again and I sort of regretted that I had given it up because if I would have kept on that path, I might've had a chance to be like a, a college player, like not a pro, but, um, and I remember that senior year, like I, I really put a lot of time in and I was able to like make an all-star team. And it was like a, it was a big accomplishment and I sort of the passion for it was reignited. So I got to Notre Dame, um, and I didn't play, uh, for the school, but they had a, a club team and I played for that and we had dorm hockey and I played there. So played in the men's league. Like I was sort of back full in. I was, I was doing it all the time because, um, it was something that I wanted to do. It wasn't, it was fun again. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I didn't have the talent, even if I stuck with it, I would never would have been a professional. I sort of regret a little bit that I stopped playing, but it wasn't fun. And I think that's, you know, I've tried to take that approach with my kids where, if, if it's not enjoyable, then find something else to do. Like, I want you to be passionate about something. And if it's not hockey, that's okay. If it is hockey, that's good as well. But I don't think you should do something just because, you know, your father's involved in it. That, that's, that doesn't work. It is a hard thing as a parent, though. I don't know if you've experienced this, but you do want to keep encouraging them. You don't want them to have regrets, right? You, right. If you ha I've had friends whose kids have, you know, given up baseball once they were already playing in college or that kind of thing. And as a parent, you do want them to be happy, but you don't want them to regret later that they, they quit and didn't stay with it. Yeah, well, I, I've thought about that because, you know, you want your kids to, to put their um, time and effort into something. And if it's not sports, it could be uh, music. It could be, there, there has to be something driving you other than just doing nothing, right? Because I think, uh, I really believe that there's value in, in team sports. You, you build a lot of character. You build a lot of... Um, you learn a lot of life skills in your interactions and, and um, being on a team. So I do think athletics are um, a good outlet for kids. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. Some kids are inclined other ways. And But I still think that, like in my house, it's not okay to do nothing. If you don't want to play sports, that's okay. But you got to find, then come to me with something like, what's your plan? You, you, can, you can come up with your own plan, but it can't just be, I'm not going to do anything. It's got to be a plan and, and you know, as it turns out, both my boys are into hockey and, um, you know, my daughter's starting as well. So um, we've got hockey in our family. Whether that continues or not, we'll see. Now, I would have guessed when you were five or ten, you would have wanted to go into hockey, go into the family business. But you didn't really decide until much later. 
Yeah, I no, I didn't. Um, maybe there was that subconscious feeling that if I just jumped right into hockey, people would say I was only doing it because my dad was. I wanted to do it because I could do it, not because he got me a job somewhere. And I think that's why when I started in Chicago, he didn't know the people there. Mike Smith hired me. He, he never didn't know Mike at all. There was no sort of connection to um, like I didn't want to work for the Red Wings, even though I'm sure if I asked him he, he could have tried to find something for me but I, I sent out letters to everybody like I didn't want to do it that way I want to do it my own way and maybe that's why when I was younger I didn't want to get into it just because that was his thing and I wanted to kind of be a little bit different but I couldn't deny that I guess the, the force kind of you know pulled me back in and I I couldn't get away from it and you know I love where I'm at right now. Has there ever been a time or were there times have there been times where you had to fight the perception that you've gotten where you are or you had opportunities because you were a Bowman. Is that something you've had to shake or is that not something you've dealt with much? No, it, of course that's always there. I think it, it was probably there more when I started. Um, I didn't go right from uh, graduating into hockey. Like I worked for about five years in the business world. Um, and I think, you know, I, looking back on it, I didn't have this conscious thought, but I think I probably wanted to go do my own thing for a little bit. Like I always loved hockey and I always hoped I would somehow find my way into hockey, but I wasn't really trying to do that out of college. I got a job as a consultant and I worked in the computer consulting field. I did that for like five years. And then I got to a point where, um, you know, things were going well. I was, I was successful at it, but I didn't really enjoy it. Like, um, it was one of those things like you're good at it, but I couldn't see myself doing that at, in my 40s. Like, it was fun right out of college. It was sort of like an extension of college almost. Like, you know, you were out with your friends and you, you know, it was a, we worked, but we also had a good time at it. And I was thinking like, this isn't going to last for the next 20, 30 years. I, like, and I don't want to be really doing this when I'm older. So it was at that time when I said, if I'm going to change, I didn't have a family at the time. Um, now was probably the time to, to see if I could do something in hockey. So, you know, I started with the Blackhawks. My dad was still coaching with the Red Wings at the time. And I, you know, I really, I had a very small role my first year or two. I was just like, in a, um, I used sort of my business skills to get in and I did some accounting and financial work and I had a computer background. So this was way before where we are now. Well, you, but, were, you were kind of ahead of your time, though. You you used those computer skills, though. You were kind of a techie and a right. little bit more advanced than a lot of the guys were in the office. Yeah. I mean, there was really no system to track anything back then. This was like 2000 or 2001. So there wasn't really anything. So, yeah, I developed some I mean, very rudimentary things to track, um, to track things. And uh, that was sort of... That was my in, right? So I brought that to the table because I didn't have any real hockey. I had hockey... Um, knowledge as a fan and I was around the game but I didn't really I hadn't any practical working experience in hockey so the only way I was going to get a job was I had to bring some other skills so I did some accounting and financial um, you know modeling and and that kind of stuff and then once I showed that I could do that I said how about the like I got these abilities databases to do these things and track things so that was my in and then once I was in then I had to prove that I could do it. And, you know, fortunately for me, way back then, the the staff was a sort of a skeleton crew. There was not a lot of people working. And um, I got a lot of experience at a young age, you know, and I, I really 
honestly wasn't qualified to do what I was doing, but I was sort of learning on the fly. I had to learn all the CBA stuff. I had to learn how to negotiate. I didn't really, I was calling agents. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I just sort of, I just sort of figured it out. And, um, there wasn't like a spotlight on our, our team was struggling. This was like I said, 2002, 2003, we were, um, we weren't, you know, going as an organization and, you know, there wasn't a ton of interest locally in our team. We, we had fallen off. The Blackhawks had a great run there until like the mid to late nineties. They were, they were really a, a good team. And then they, they sort of fell off. And, and so there wasn't really a lot of eyes on us. And I was able to gain a lot of experience in a couple of years when I was doing all kinds of different things. And I think it, it served me well, ultimately for, you know, now I kind of have an appreciation for all those different roles because I got a chance to do them over the years. And so things are going well, and then you get this diagnosis mm -hmm. of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Take us back to when the doctor says that to you. Yeah, that was a tough time. It was, uh, I remember it was, it was right on Valentine's Day, and I, um, I woke up one morning um, out of the blue. I had this big lump like on my neck, like almost looked like I had gotten stung by a bee, and I had like a reaction, like a big... Like allergy reaction. But it was, it was really raised, and it was like almost like a, like a baseball on my neck. Wow. And I remember it's kind of scratching, like, that's so weird. It came up in the matter of from the time I went to bed till the time I woke up. And I, I had been... It was, I guess it was February and I had been sick for a couple of weeks. Like I was, uh, I had a really bad cough. It, it just, it wouldn't go away, but I mean, you get coughs in the winter. It's usually not that big of a deal. And, um, so I went to the doctor and, uh, actually I, it's sort of an interesting story. I, they, they looked at me, they said, I think you probably have something with your lymph nodes or swollen, um, uh, probably have an infection. We can't really detect it, but you know, why don't you go home, um, in two weeks, come back if it doesn't give me an antibiotic or something. So I was leaving and my friend, a friend from when I was a kid, um, we, we went to uh, grammar school and high school together. He was a ER doctor in, in Chicago. He, he was working at the hospital that I was at and they had dis discharged me. I was heading home and I called him and I kind of said what was going on. And he said, well, I'm actually, I'm on my way down for my shift. I can just want you to wait. So I waited and, and we went in, he kind of did the same test everyone did. And then he asked me a couple questions. And one, one of the questions I remember he asked, he's like, have you ever had any kind of night sweats or anything like that? And I said, actually I did. Um, the last week, like three times I've woken up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night. And I remember he looked, he had like a funny look and he's like, oh, okay. And then he said, did they, did they do any kind of imaging, like any CT scans? And I said, no, they didn't. They just they checked me out in other ways and he said, all right, well, well, we'll do that. Why don't we just do that before you're here? So we'll do it. So I, I remember talking to him later. Um, and he said, you know, that was, that was the one question they didn't ask me before. And that's sort of a telltale sign for Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, um, so when they did the CT scan, they saw I had all these tumors in my chest, right? Which wow. is why I was coughing because, wow. you know, they were kind of compressing on my lungs and so that began the whole process, right? You have to get a biopsy and you have to go through it. So, I mean, it, it shakes you pretty, um, pretty badly. And I remember, uh, but you know, I got through it. So I did six months of chemo and, um, like, so probably by August of that year, um, it went away and it was in remission. And I'm like, wow, this is great. Everyone always said, you got the good cancer. If you want to get cancer, get Hodgkin's it, yeah, you're young, you'll, you'll get rid of it and no problem. 
So uh, you have a couple checks in the fall, and um, I remember I remember this to this day. I was I was in Los Angeles with the team. Um, it was the outdoor game between Buffalo and Pittsburgh. First, oh, the first uh, one. First one. I'm th- I'm sitting there watching it, and I had gone right before Christmas, um, right before we went on a road trip for like my whatever it would have been six month checkup. I got a call from my oncologist and I was watching the game in my hotel room and he said, um, like, when are you going to be back in town? We just need to go over a couple things. And I said, why? What's up? He said, well, there's just, just something on your last test. You know, we just need to kind of do a follow up. It's probably, probably nothing. And then I come back and I remember, uh, I went and had another test and, and it was, and it came back. So the cancer had come back in a matter of six months, which was, not supposed to happen, right? I mean, that's not a good sign. And I remember that was when it started to get real scary because you can't just go through chemo again. You got to have a transplant, you know? So, so then from January until probably the end of April, I had to go through a bunch more tests, um, a whole nother round of chemo. And then I had to go in for a stem cell transplant where they keep you in the hospital. You're in the hospital for about three weeks and um, they take your stem cells out. Uh, they kind of bombard your body with like all this chemo and they kind of take you kind of onto the brink of death. And wow. then they put your stem cells back in and they let you regenerate. And, um, and that was a, that was a real tough time. I mean, that was probably, that's the, the darkest days of your life is when, you know, you're in the hospital and you, nobody can visit you cause you, everyone's wearing these gowns and you can't have, your family can't come. You're kind of out just by yourself and, um, you're starting to wonder like, is this gonna ever turn around? Like you start to think. I don't know, maybe this isn't meant to be. And um, you have a lot of, you know, tough times, but, you know, then you, you go through it and you, you start to feel better. You come out, had a few more treatments, some radiation, and then and then it's been good ever since. So it just goes to show you that you can't get ahead of yourself, right? I think that's the one thing I've learned throughout the process is you got to kind of stay in the moment. Don't let your mind wander. I mean, everyone does it, right? You think worst case scenario. I had little kids, I mean... I think my son uh, was probably two years old, maybe two and a half. And I had a five-year-old and a, a two-year-old. And my daughter hadn't even been born yet. Um, and now uh, my son's 16, 13. Wow. And, and, um, but uh, those were some challenging times. And, uh, but it almost seems like a different lifetime for me now because I've been, you know, I've been fine since then. How about those religion classes? Did you go back to some of that in, in keeping the faith? Yeah, I think that's sort of a universal amongst wh- whatever actual religion you are, whether you're Catholic or, or whatever. I think having faith that, um, that things will improve and, you know, that that's, it's hard when you're in the midst of it to have faith because I think we're trained to almost be pessimists, but um, fortunately for me, I've always been an optimistic person. I, I always look on the bright side and, um, can't say everyone around me had the same sort of vibe. So I was, I found myself sometimes trying to talk everyone else through it, but, um, it's all, I think it's probably almost harder for you, for people that are on the periphery because, um, like I'm the one that I get to go do something about being sick, right? I get, even though the treatments are no fun you sort of mentally feel like you're, you're doing something. Whereas your wife or your family, they're not doing anything. They're just sort of watching it and they're feeling helpless to it. So I think faith is an important part to just believe that things are going to get better. And I, I can't prove it to you, but if you have a faith 
you know, it certainly helped me have a positive outlook was, was the way I approached it. Was Patrick Kane living with you at the time? Yeah, so Patrick was living with me when I had that relapse. So when I got sick before we drafted him, like in February, we drafted Patrick in June. Uh, the draft was in Columbus. And then that next fall, um, he was in training camp and he was in the hotel. And I remember we just had invited him over for dinner one time. Um, I didn't know Patrick, but my dad knew him you know, from, we're from Buffalo. Oh, and right. My dad had heard a lot about this kid since he was like 13 years old, like this phenom. So he knew that he, he had met him a few times, but um, I invited him over um, just to get him out of the hotel. So he came over and um, we had dinner together and he was great with my kids. Like they were like five and two at the time. And... Um, you know, after that, we were trying to figure, we decided we were going to keep him and not send him back to London. And we we're trying to decide where, where should he go. And I just said, you know, if you can stay with us, it wasn't like this was a planned out thing. It was more, let's just try it. I mean, if you want. And so he, so he was with us. And then when I got sick again, a few months into it, he was having a great year. You know, he was rookie of the year that season. And I remember thinking to myself, like, Patrick's not going to want to stay. I mean, uh, there's because the hard part was there's a lot of emotions, right? Everyone's sad. Everyone's crying when, I mean, it's sort of, you know, and you try to shelter your kids from it. Like, like, but obviously there's a lot of sadness at that time because you're sick again and it's a lot more serious than the first time around. And I'm thinking like, well, Patrick's not going to want to deal with this. I mean, he was having a great year. Um, and I just assumed that he would want to, go somewhere else and not be around the sort of the drama of someone who's sick. And I remember talking to him and he was like, well, do I have to leave? And I said, no, you don't have to leave at all. I just kind of, he's like, I, I just kind of would rather stay if that's okay. I mean, I, I feel, it feels like, I don't think it'd be right to leave. I don't want to leave. And I remember thinking my wife and I talked and, and we said, this is actually great because the one thing we were trying to do for our kids was when you, when things are bad like that, you want to try to have some kind of normalcy. And they had gotten used to Patrick being there. He would come home and he would kind of you know mess around with them, and they would he would they would go and bother him. And like he was such a good sport to you know occupying them. And, and he had a room in the basement, and they would go down there and play and stuff. And um, it, it was nice that we didn't have to change things up there's that side of Patrick that no one ever really talks about that I mean he's one of the most caring people you'll ever meet he's such a sensitive guy and he's such a caring person and um, you know he's been through a lot over the years and I think there's that connection that you'll always have and it was in a tough it was a tough time for our family and he was there to kind of make it easier for everybody was your dad broken up about it yeah he was and that was actually about the time when he joined the Blackhawks so um you know, he had been working, he, he retired from coaching and in 2002 when they won the cup, but he was with the Red Wings in their front office for a while. And, um, I had always wanted him to come work for us, but he was in a great, I mean, they treated him great in Detroit and they, they still do to this day, um, with all the history they had together. But when I got sick, um, it was when, you know, we sort of, we asked permission, would you guys be willing to let, and I think at that moment my dad came over and he was working for us but I think more importantly I was I was struggling at that time um, it was when Patrick was living with us and I remember um, he was coming on board to 
you know, to be part of the organization and, you know, that, but that was always a dream of mine was to, and I remember I've told this story before. Um, I was at Notre Dame in, um, in 1992, it was end of my freshman year and the Penguins were with playing the Blackhawks in the Stanley cup final. My dad was coaching the Penguins. So I got a chance to go and I was at the game when they won the cup in Chicago um, short drive. It was yeah, an hour and a half away, and my my siblings were all jealous because they didn't get to go to the Stanley Cup. Really? Thing. It was just me because I I just made the dr- drive over and. Now they have charters that fly the families oh, back yeah. and forth, but not back then, right? No, this wow. is 1992. It w- didn't work that way back then. Um, so my mom my mom was at the game, so the two of us were there, and we got to be in the locker room and celebrate. And then the next day we drove to Notre Dame and packed my stuff up and drove home to Buffalo. And on that ride home, she was asking me, you know, kind of like, how's your first year going? What do you want to do? What are you going to study? And I said, someday I would love to work in hockey and I, it would be really cool if I could work with dad. And I remember her saying, oh, like, because she hadn't really heard that before, that that was an aspiration of mine. And she said, oh, like as a coach. And I said, no, I'm I'm not a I'm not a coach. Like I couldn't see myself coaching. I just, I don't have that skill set. I don't have the interest in doing it. And um, so she said, well, how would that work? I said, well, in some kind of management capacity, I think it'd be neat to really be on the same team and us trying to win a cup together. So, you know, fast forward a number of years to we get to 2010. And, and when that happened, it was, um, it was pretty unique. And, of course, two more Stanley Cups to go with that first one in 2010. Quite a journey. And you're still young. Thanks so much for doing this, Stan. Thanks, Deb. I enjoyed it. Stan Bowman, Vice President and General Manager of the Chicago Blackhawks, loved chatting with him. So remember, you can subscribe and download our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Audioboom, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Deb Placey. Until next time in the NHL Executive Suite.